From Kickstarter, this is just the beginning. In this episode, Making Waves. I'm Nick Yolman, and this is Just the Beginning, Kickstarter's podcast about how independent creative people bring their ideas to life. And it's been a bit since we wrapped our first season. There are eight episodes full of stories you can go back and listen to now, and we're working on a new season that'll be out early next year. But in the meantime, we're going to be sharing a few bonus episodes about projects we love. And for this one, Liz Cook Mao, who is Kickstarter's director of documentary film, joins us from Portland, Oregon, where she lives. Hi, Liz. Hey, Nick. And yeah, I work with the Kickstarter film community. I really love working with documentary filmmakers in particular. They're just passionate about the stories they're telling, not in it for the glory, but really fueled by an intense curiosity. So you're here to tell us about a film that you worked with that just came out. Yep, it's a documentary called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. And as the title suggests, it's all about sound and film. It takes us from the earliest silent films where they sometimes perform live sound effects in the movie theater through to the incredibly detailed, immersive soundtracks we hear today. And when most people think about sound in film, music is probably what comes to mind. For sure, and that's definitely a big part of it. Like, who doesn't love some epic theme music? Uh (laughs) But there are also so many other ways that filmmakers use sound to tell stories. Sound effects, ambiance that creates a sense of place, obviously the dialogue. Basically, for anything you hear in the film, there's a team of people making creative decisions about what it should sound like. So it sounds like this documentary is like an introduction to this literally invisible creative world that most of us don't even think about when we're watching a movie. Exactly. And there's so much to explore. But before we really get into it, let's start with a pop quiz. (laughs) Okay. So what is the sound? Uh, I believe that is a Wookiee. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's obviously Chewbacca, the Wookiee from Star Wars. But if you hadn't seen Star Wars, if it hadn't even been made yet, and the director, George Lucas, asked you what a furry alien called a Wookiee should sound like, how would you figure that out? That sounds like a hard assignment. Well, the person who got that assignment was Ben Burt. George wanted to know before they filmed the movie, how would the Wookiee sound? We were trying to find an animal that had enough vocal expressiveness in its sounds that we could use it for the Wookiee. You know, he spent over a year collecting sounds. That's Bobette Buster. She's the writer and one of the producers of Making Waves. They'd recorded lions and walruses, and they just didn't know what a Wookiee would sound like. But he went out with a friend, Richard Anderson, and they found a bear, a little baby bear named Pooh. The bear would... And when they would feed it bread, be like, and all the sounds that we now associate with Chewbacca. So they taunted this poor baby bear all day with milk and bread, and they got all these amazing sounds. Well, you said it, Chewie. And when you think about all the sounds in Star Wars, from the hum of the lightsabers to Darth Vader breathing. They play such a central role in making this imaginary world feel real. You know, he actually went to a scuba diving shop and recorded breathing through the mask. We've been hearing from Bobette Buster, one of the producers of Making Waves, 
And for a long time, she's been on a mission to get people to appreciate the importance of sound in film, to get more filmmakers to take sound as seriously as George Lucas did with Star Wars. My point of view was to open the ears of the writers, the producers, so that they loved the power of sound for storytelling and they were open to really incorporating it with how they wrote scenes and also how they budgeted. I created a course on sound and storytelling and then I was asked to lecture around the world. Bobette became this advocate within the film industry for the importance of sound, talking to different producers and studios. And one day when she was presenting at Pixar, a guy named Gary Rydstrom was in the audience. He did sound for Toy Story and Jurassic Park, and he's won seven Oscars. And I was like, holy shit, it's Gary Rydstrom. And I went up to him, he, he wanted to take me to lunch. And at first she was trying to convince him to make a film about cinematic sound. I said, how come you guys haven't made a documentary? And uh, he said, well, we're kind of busy and it would take a while. He said, but I'll back you, I'll introduce you to all the key people, but why don't you start with Midge Costin? That's where you need to go. I'm Mitch Costin, and I'm the director and producer, and I actually have had a career in, as a sound editor in feature films. So Mitch is this legend in the world of film sound. She's worked on big films like The Rock and Armageddon. This was the big era of late 80s, early 90s, and we were all in this new kind of world of surround sound, and you know, my first big studio film was Days of Thunder. I was always doing kind of the bad guy, the guy who was racing against Tom Cruise, his car. So it was so cool. And she's a beloved teacher, too. Put it this way, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas funded a chair at USC Film School specifically for Midge. I love teaching filmmakers. What was great was thinking of myself as a panicked film student, and I loved giving the students like a leg up and be able to say, here, just do it this way. And when I became tenured, I definitely looked at all of the descriptions of the classes, and they all said, you know, visual storytelling. And I said, can we just add the word oral? So this film is a chance for Midge to teach a much broader audience about film sound. And you know, assembling a team to make a film can be kind of like the beginning of an action movie where you need to get just the right people on board to complete a mission or something. And the final person the Making Waves team needed was Karen Johnson. I have a background producing documentary for quite a while. I had produced a feature called Double Dare about Hollywood stunt women, which also involved a lot of movie clips and we knew that was on the horizon for this picture and honestly this film was my sound education i went to usc but i had never taken a class on sound i could appreciate it because my parents were musicians but learning about how sound can be used in film creatively has been a journey for me one of the first things that i remembered when we first started talking about this movie was when i was a child my sister loved horror movies, and I hated them. And so the parental compromise was, okay, you can watch them with the sound off. If you do that, they're absolutely not scary anymore, right? Because all of the scare is constructed in the sound department. Creepy monsters, it's like looking at an illustration. That's not scary. It's only when you hear and sense the fear that sound creates. And as they explained in Making Waves, Creating sounds for a monster was kind of the birth of modern film sound. Ben Burt talks about in the documentary how Murray Spivak in 1933 with King Kong was the first to really create sound design. Many of the techniques we use to manipulate sound today were pioneered on that film. 
The bulk of it is all about characters that don't exist. So Murray Spivak had to get creative to find the right sound. He went to the Selig Zoo, and he recorded all these tigers and lions and bears. I got all the roars I needed, and I played the tiger growl backwards against the lion roar forward, and it gave me a sort of an uncanny roar. He actually had to do this sort of secretly, and he was being so creative, and you know, he said if the powers that be had really known what they were doing, they would say, like, no, no, we don't need that. But that was the beginning of the creative process. So it makes sense that you'd record fierce animal sounds to bring a monster like King Kong to life. But that's not the only way sound designers have used them. It turns out roaring animals are kind of a staple of Hollywood sound design. Karen shared one of her favorite examples of this. My favorite would be the C.C. Hall story, a woman who did sound for Top Gun and had to do the airplanes. You've seen the movie and probably never gave a second thought to and thought, oh, well, that, of course, that's how those jet planes sound, when in fact, they don't sound anything like that. The jets themselves are not that interesting. They sounded kind of wimpy. That's sound designer C.C. Hall, and she took these disappointing jet sounds and added a whole menagerie of wild animal sounds to make them more exciting. Lions and tiger roars and monkey screeches. Until she had something that sounded appropriately fierce. And it's the single most labor-intensive editing process I've ever experienced. And of course, part of an approach like this is practical. The sound of an actual jet isn't that interesting, so you construct the sound you want. But Babette and Midge explain that there's something deeper going on in using an animal roar to represent an airplane. Oh, it's all really driven by metaphor. It's better that it's not literal. I did talk to somebody at the Brain Institute at USC about how do we process sound. And those low-frequency sounds we use to hit you in the gut and scare you, and you don't even know why. It's still such a primal thing. It's like lizard brain. And it's like you hear a low frequency, and we're on edge, like, oh, no, it's an earthquake or some kind of big animal. Even in Days of Thunder, when the cars would go by each other or something, you'd put animal roars, and it's because we're reacting still to these big old animals, and it's scary to us. Sometimes when you're trying to have a cut kind of pop, you put actually a little explosion or a gunshot, but not so that you can hear it. You mix it way down, and so you're putting things that subliminally hit us. But film isn't all about the big sounds like roars and explosions and gunshots. Making waves also gets into how important subtle, quiet sounds, or even silence, can be. You have to think about dynamic range, and that's like, where is it going to be loud? Where is it going to be quiet? It can't be continually loud, just like a piece of music. It has to have fluctuations. There are moments that have to be quiet. And the interesting thing about silence is it's not really silent. It's that it's so quiet that you can hear the little sounds. You can hear the single cricket. You can hear the wood floor creaking. Hitchcock was a real innovation because for years, Hollywood just put wall-to-wall soundtrack music. You know, if you watch Gone with the Wind, it's just nonstop violins. And Hitchcock comes along with the birds and creates such anxiety, of course, which he was the master of, you know, as Tippi Hedren comes in the room. She opens the door, no sound. You know, she goes in the room, she kind of closes the door, she looks up, and then we hear her breath. And then the birds. 
you can orchestrate people's fears, emotions, all these other things with this sense of dynamic range. And they uncover this interesting connection between film sound and experimental music, specifically how Walter Murch, who did sound for The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, had this formative experience as a kid. When Walter was young, his father was an artist, you know, was a painter, and he um, actually brought him to a John Cage concert. And he was totally mesmerized by what John Cage was trying to get everyone to hear the music in everyday life. He was proselytizing that everything is music. Even the sound that the audience makes in the theater is music. And even the sound of the lid of the piano going down is kind of music. He made us pay attention. So when they started working on The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola brought him in. He got to, he said, pull out his music concrete inner demon. In The Godfather, the moment leading up to Salazzo's death, is accompanied by this screechy, John Cagey sound. This screeching gets louder and louder and louder until he finally knows he has to kill this man. He can no longer reason with him. And as he's killing Salazzo, he's also killing his American dream. And that is, to me, the real breakthrough of the mix of Music Concrete and John Cage with American cinema. And sometimes film sound can be like a musical performance. For some effects, sound designers use recorded sounds, either things they go out and record themselves or existing sound from these massive collections called sound libraries. But there are also people called Foley artists, and they record sound effects in real time while watching a playback of the film. You go into a, a soundproof stage and you record incidental sounds, clapping or footsteps, but you're watching the picture and doing it in sync with the picture. And there are also all these different surfaces that you can step on, something that sounds like grass, there's sand. If you go into Foley stage, it looks like a big um, garbage dump. They'll have pieces of cars. Foley is named after Jack Foley, and he was a sound editor, and this was early on, like in the 40s and 50s, and there weren't big libraries. So they'd go down to a room that was quiet, sound place, and they'd create their own custom sounds. And so Jack was working on Stanley Kubrick's film Spartacus, and Kubrick thought that the soldiers, their armor sounded like pots and pans, and he was really upset. So Jack Foley says, um, wait a minute, and he runs out to his car and he gets like a big set of keys and he gets an aluminum sheet. You hear the before and after and it makes such a difference, you know, like making these custom sound effects that can really add weight and character to things. You get a bigger bang for your buck because Stanley Kubrick was saying, we have to go back and shoot this and it's a cast of thousands. And no, you just put the sound effects on. Making Waves is full of stories like this, fascinating details about how sounds were created for these famous films. And a lot of the sound people they celebrate aren't household names. Even if you've heard of Foley sound effects, chances are you don't know who Jack Foley was or that he bailed out Stanley Kubrick when the epic battle scene he shot sounded terrible. But there's one kind of surprising sound innovator they cover, whose name you definitely do know. One thing I will say about Barbara Streisand was that she fought for the sound experience, which delighted her to learn that she was an absolute breakthrough pioneer in sound and stereo in cinema. Lead. 
And when she had the power as a star, and she was leading lady and producer of Star is Born, she was given a budget to make the movie. She said, well, I'm going to spend an extra million dollars and spend the time it takes to make this movie sound right. Well, the movie's about big-name singers, so she wanted people to feel enveloped like they were in the concert. And so not only is it the voices, but you hear, like, the crowds. And they're huge. Before that time, it was all mono, and now they were doing stereo. Yeoman Allen was a, a great executive promoting stereo sound, and it was being embraced by the rock and roll industry, and we got used to that. But he tells this amazing story about a Hollywood movie executive pounding the table and saying, God damn it, it's good stories in comfortable seats. That's what sells movies, not sound. But then, in 1976, with The Star is Born, Barbara Streisand had the imagination to say it. I want to do this vast stereo sound with my film and just to tell the studio we're going to do it. But the important thing was to the sound community and the industry was that she broke new ground and respect. And after that, that was a sea change. When they got Barbara Streisand and Stanley Kubrick and George Lucas to care about sound, that was the true breakthrough. And now we take it as a matter of course that yes, we go to a movie theater, we're gonna have a great immersive sound experience. And you go back and listen to these other movies that have only been mixed in mono and you're like, what? And yes, they did interview Barbara herself about why she fought so hard for stereo sound. But you'll have to go see Making Waves to hear her side of the story. <laughs> well, that's reason enough to go see it. It's amazing that this documentary covers everything from King Kong to Barbara Streisand. Yeah, it covers a lot. And the clips we've heard are just a small taste. They give us a behind-the-scenes look at how sound was created for Toy Story, for Apocalypse Now, The Matrix, so many others. We see this as a real great 90-minute crash course in sound, but I hope future generations will be inspired to think about how creatively you can juxtapose sound and image and how much more dimension you can create with this. You know, Spielberg says that sound is the true 3D. You don't have to have a lot of money. It's your imagination in the end and how you're using the elements that you have on hand to tell a story. I have to say now, if I hear a really good creaky door or something break in an interesting way, I hear that. You know, I would have never thought about that before. And so it does go beyond just movies. It goes into your whole life. If you want to see a movie that opens your ears and invites you to hear things in a new way, check out Making Waves, the art of cinematic sound. It opens today, Friday, October 25th, in select theaters, and will be showing more widely in the U.S. and beyond in the coming months. Head to makingwavesmovie.com to find out about screenings in your area. That's it for the show. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to hear more of these bonus episodes and to find out about our next season. For Kickstarter, I'm Nick Yolman, and this is Just the Beginning. Just the Beginning.